Hi, my name is John Kim, and I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth. I share my feelings and revelations. I believe in casual or clinical, and with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. I'm super excited about my guest today. Uh, we actually co-facilitated a retreat together in Bali. That's where I met him, and his name is Lance Allred. Uh, I like to call him Lance Allred. See what I did there? Growing up in the 80s. Anyway, if you don't know, I'm a huge fan of people's stories. And I find one's character arc very beautiful. And I don't know if it's the screenwriter in me, but I gravitate toward people who have gone somewhere, gone through something, people who have um, made their way through their hero's journey. And um, I think that's how we learn, right? It's through each other's stories. Um, this guy has an amazing story. He has one of the most col colorful, amazing stories uh, I've ever heard. So I'm not going to say anything about him. Um, I'm going to let him tell you his story. So enjoy Lance Allred. Hey, Lance. Thanks for uh, being on my podcast. Good to be here, John. Thanks yeah. for having me, man. So I met Lance um, at a retreat in Bali, and we had a, a really, really, we had a, uh, an interesting time because uh, we were the only men, right, in the <laughs> retreat, and also we were the two people uh, leading the groups. Yes, we were the coaches, and uh, as and, that was very interesting. And yeah, also, you, I, I tend to ahead. be on the I tend to be on the shorter side, and Lance tends to be on the taller side. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting dynamic that you and I had as far as, um, the way we led the groups. And if you had told me a year ago that, um, I would be coaching women at retreats, I would have said that sounds, doesn't sound very likely, Right. but, uh, the niche that I've been falling into has been, uh, more, I still do my keynotes and corporate training and stuff like that, but more moving into retreat based focused work. And I, I think you'll agree, it's actually much more uh, intimate and actually more emotionally fulfilling for me. And so having you there was fun. Yeah, definitely. I really liked, uh, and I'm so happy that you were there so I could uh, also participate in your groups as well, you know, and I think that's what was kind of cool about the retreat is we um, led, but also participated. Yeah, no, it was, it was fun. And, but you know, that's, that's why I liked you as well too, because you know, we have so many quote unquote gurus and influencers out there and too yeah. many people always posturing, wanting to act like um, uh, they're in charge or they're superior. But the fact that you and I were actually able to be students in each other's groups um, is just good for us in our work, but also it helps the groups be more vulnerable as well. Yeah, you know, that's what I noticed about you right away was your um your vulnerability and your courage to just show up. And so I knew instantly that you weren't just wearing the t-shirt, you know? And so yeah. um, that's also another reason why I want you on my podcast. So um, I am a big fan of stories and in hearing your story, it, I mean, I really think you have one of the most interesting stories I've ever heard. So uh, this, this idea of um, people in their character arcs and finding beauty in our character arcs and, because I used to be a screenwriter, I just naturally gravitate toward that. So with your story, and yet so many pieces to this, uh, where do you want to start? <laughs> I mean, we, 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 could, we, could, uh, we could Quentin Tarantino this and start with 
you know, the first deaf person in the NBA and then go backwards or it doesn't have to be linear, but yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say, yeah, let's, um, yeah, you know, the, the immediate claim to fame that I always get is I couldn't play basketball with my hearing aids in due to sweat and concussion issues. Right. And so with the 80% hearing loss, I, um, I became the first legally deaf player in the NBA when I joined the Cleveland Cavaliers in wow. 2008. And um, from there, as people began to hear the story, other bits and pieces started to leak out in the news as people started doing the research. And they found out that I was actually born and raised in a polygamous commune in rural Montana. Yeah. And uh, so I grew up in a very extreme religious uh, cult, really, uh, is what we would call it. And uh, raised in my grandfather's dream of a utopian society that believed that if we were righteous enough, we can make Jesus come again. Mm. And so very extreme, ultra, ultra conservative religious community that taught us that uh, if we wanted to be in the highest degree of glory in heaven, we had to have at least three wives. Right. And that was one of the founding principles of Joseph Smith. Uh, the founder of the current mainstream Mormon LDS church, though the Mormon current Mormon church, the mainstream church does not practice polygamy. Uh, polygamy is very much as history and a lot of people will deny it. But uh, so I grew up in the world of, of martyrdom as my grandfather was literally killed for his beliefs and the stories of, you know, of, uh, the best man wins, you know, right. the most most alpha man gets all the women to marry him. Um, and so uh, even though we claim to be a very uh, religious or spiritual community, um, it was very much a um, what's the word? It's more than dogmatic. Uh, dogmatic uh, applies to the religious, but it was more of the um, very achievement-based culture yeah how, how how because i really want to pull the curtain back i think a lot of people have a misconception uh conceptions mm -hmm. about what polygamy is um how 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 do you pick the what is an arrangement or how does that work when it comes to um, um the marriages some of them were arranged my parents were in arranged marriage mm. Um, especially in the, a few decades back in the fifties, sixties and seventies, there were a lot of arranged marriages. Right. Um, but it's in every, in every, um, uh, paradigm, there is always going to be a sliding scale. And so in my grandfather's religious commune, the AUB with the apostolic United Brethren, while we were very, um, very conservative as opposed to the rest of the world, in the sliding scale of the paradigm of polygamy, we were actually more liberal than most. Mm -hmm. In that, my grandfather had us all or asked us all to dress like normal people, mm -hmm. go work in the real world and bring back all your money. And that's why he was the wealthiest and he was killed for his money. And that he didn't just put us in a little house in the prairie attire and put us behind chain link fences like you see the Jess group right. down in uh, Short Creek. Um, and the Allridge and the Jeff split back in the early 40s. So there's connection there. But my grandfather was savvy. Um, and it's funny, uh, as I've come to know more and more about my grandfather, he actually every year he would churn out a book 
have a ghostwriter write it for him and use it to convert more people and followers. Wow. So, John, I think you and I know that sounds like an early model to what a lot of quote unquote influencers use today. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and so it's interesting how my grandfather was actually ahead of that trend because sure. a lot of you know, a lot of authors that we know don't actually write their own books. They have ghostwriters doing it for them. And so my grandfather was actually pretty savvy in that way. But there's a lot of misconceptions about polygamy as well in that um, uh, everyone thinks that the men are sex fiends. Yeah. yeah there's, this, and, there's, this, there's this weird locker room fantasy uh, about <laughs> like, oh, you know, you, I could have multiple wives and what that's like. But I mean, but the yeah. reality is it's that's not easy. No, it's not because you and I are – both of our transitions came from the pain of a divorce right. and we know how hard it is to keep one marriage, uh, fulfilled. Oh yeah. I, I can't even imagine the emotional energy it would take to, yeah. be, to be in multiple marriages with different women. And, and so the misconception, because well, one TV goes for the sensationalist that you see so many books and documentaries about the horrors that women go through. And while this is true, um, is only a small sample, right? Um, because you're going to have your 20% of deviance, like you do in every culture. But because it's so it's so different that people are drawn to it and they want to hear the horror stories, um, they don't often pay attention to the men. Mm -hmm. And so my mom will tell you when. Um, she was in a polygamous marriage with my father before the second wife left. Um, I, I, I'm the youngest of all my, my father's children. And so I only remember my father to be monogamous. The second wife left shortly after I was born. But my mom will tell you that for the eight years they were in a polygamous marriage, while she obviously had to just suppress a lot of emotions and anxiety and she'll tell you she became severely anorexic because of it. She had a mm. lot of health concerns come from that suppression. She also tells you that she found a silver lining in that the night that my father went to the other wife's home, she was able to then say, okay, this is my night to myself. Right. I get to do what I want to do. I can watch what I want to watch or do whatever I want to do in the house and not have to worry about the husband coming home and making sure that everyone's set and happy. She got to have her own space to do what she wanted. Whereas my father and my uncles, who I watched growing up, every night they were on. Yeah, of course. They had no they had no nights off. They had to go to another home every night, fix a problem, fix a leaking sink, do some handiwork around the house, and then deal with the help to deal with the kids' issues. And so he's always on. And um, imagine it's just like uh, every house you're gone for two or three nights, there's just uh, a growing list of chores every night that when you're not there are being added on to. And it takes its toll. Yeah, yeah. It's, and, I mean, it's so predictable. Well, I mean, just really predictable. Our society uh, just goes straight to the sex part. And sex is, yeah. so, I mean, it's important, but it's, it's, it's such a small part of a marriage you know it's it's one and, part uh, yeah it is a small part and my parents will tell you in this culture there was only sex for the means of procreation right so it's not and like so it's not the fantasy that sex yeah it's not the, oh. the fantasy that people play in their heads no it's not and um so therefore i mean even though he had two eyes my dad got a lot less action than i ever did so <laughs> yeah. uh, 
It's um, a, I'm going to totally date myself, but it's like Mr. Roper or Mr. Furley, yes. the landlord, just always fixing shit every year. Yeah, always, <laughs> right. all the time. Right. And also think about the mind games that are involved, that the wife knows you're going to wife number two oh, tomorrow yeah. night. I can't imagine. So she is she really going to be open and vulnerable and intimate with you? Right. Um, and even if she is letting you have sex, is the sex really fulfilling? Right. Is it intimate? Is it connecting? Right. Not really. And so um, when a lot of people can look at it, they can fantasize about it, as you said. But um, as we do with all things in relationships, we can fantasize about a monogamous marriage. But sure. once you actually hit the nitty gritty, you're like, wait, this isn't anything close to what right. I was expecting. Right. Now, let me ask you this. How did all that form your definitions of love growing up and, mm. you know, the, your, your whole transition? Yeah, that's uh that's a heavy question. I mean, it must, um, must have been confusing. See. Yeah. Oh yeah, very very confusing because, well, one, uh, I grew, it, it taught me that uh, love was a very conditional term. Mm. That when my father blew the whistle on child abuse and money laundering, we went into hiding when I was thirteen. His whole family disowned us, and actually, we had to go into hiding. And wow. that's uh, it taught me that, you know, uh, blood is doesn't really mean things as far as hey will people choose blood and family or would they choose their stories and comfort zones of their right. paradigm right they usually choose their stories and um so in that that compounded what was already a growing internal narrative of what love and intimacy was in that as a boy um I saw the women usually gravitate to the men who had the most power mm. or the up and comers. And um, uh, let's go back even further in history that the Mormon church, Mason church tells a narrative about Joseph Smith, the founder and how he allowed for polygamy by saying that there were just more women converts than men at the very beginning stages of the church's development in 1840s. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually not true. There were just as many women, men as there are women at that time. But what you saw, again, was women choosing to hitch their wagon to the man that could most likely provide for them and their children, and the man that was going to have the most influence and power in the church as he rose to the ranks. So it was a more of a status thing. It was a status thing. Yeah. Um, and, and for some, they would say, oh, it was a religious spiritual thing. So I want to be the man who's most spiritual and connected to God, right? But that still is a status thing. Mm -hmm. And so as a boy, I was taught that um, status and power meant intimacy. Yeah. Meant love. Meant, meant, meant uh, that you would be loved. Yes, exactly. And so it was a very much uh, um, an achievement-based um, uh, motherboard that I was operating from that said, I have to do this and do this, and I have to achieve great things before I can receive love. And now, John, as you know, you don't have to grow up in polygamy for many men to have this uh, distorted illusion mm -hmm. um, uh, deeply and early embedded into their subconscious and their psyche uh, in our Western society and culture 
and that you know we have a lot of confusion uh, especially right now in the aftermath of the apex of the me too movement that you have a lot of women uh, saying they want they want equality, which is within well within their rights and very reasonable to demand. And you also have the Hollywood movies that men are dragged to on their dates, the romantic movies where the women say they want intimacy and they want the men to be vulnerable. Yet at the same time, we saw growing up and we still see growing up uh, a lot of women choosing the man who might not be very good looking but he has money mm. and that's very confusing for a lot of men right now yeah i think uh, both men and women have been programmed especially um in our society that to tie our worth to you know performance achievement ability all of mm -hmm. that stuff you know and so absolutely absolutely and so what you're getting at men and women is actually a team effort and so uh, women uh, demanding that men change, but not giving men compassion and patience at the same time uh, to help us learn what vulnerability is and what intimacy is. It takes time. And those are hard things to uh, undo because even after we broke away from polygamy, John, I, at the age of 13, I still mm. had the story that I had to do something amazing right. with my life. To be worthy? To be worthy of love. Right. From God or from another woman. Mm -hmm. And so as we transitioned out of polygamy, I lost all my cousins who had been my best friends. And there I was at a new school. I grew that year from 5'10 to 6'4 and didn't have any friends. And the coach saw me walking down the hall one day and he's like, Hey, you come play basketball. You're tall. I'm like, sure. Okay, fine. I don't, I didn't have any basketball skills. I was a writer and a Dungeons and Dragons kid growing mm, up. Right? right. And, um, so I figured, okay, let's give this basketball thing a shot. It's a good way for me to fit in. So you were more artist and athlete. Oh, absolutely. I, 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 uh, with all the books I, I've written and everything, I, I won writing awards when I was a kid mm. in elementary and I was the, very shy and introverted. I was a speech therapy till I was 16. Um, I had to learn to read first and then I'd watch people read back. So I learned to read their lips that way. Wow. Um, in rural Montana where I was born, there were no amenities to learn sign language. So I had to learn to speak and read lips and mm. uh, thousands and thousands of hours of speech therapy. But in that time, very shy and introverted. And my parents encouraged me to again read, but also write to communicate and express myself. And um, so through that, I was always much more of a writer. And I tell people now, I was a writer who played basketball. I wasn't a basketball player who also happened to write. Right. And so I, I loved writing is how I always expressed myself. And so when I began playing basketball, organized basketball for the first time in eighth grade, yeah, I wasn't good at first at all. Mm -hmm. I was awful, actually, and I was ejecting my first game because the ref thought I was ignoring him when I just couldn't hear him. Right. And uh, right then, people were saying, oh, yeah, no, he's too deaf. He can't do this. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly stubborn. There were, many, there were many motivations as to why I wanted to and did make the NBA. And that first, I actually found that I did like playing basketball. I enjoyed it. And I wanted to make money playing basketball. And um, 
there are lots of things, but also spite. Spite, which spite's always a good motivation, but if, if it's your only motivation, then it's empty calories. Right. To me, spite is like the last gallon of gasoline in your in your trunk mm-hmm. that you have that you need just to help you get over the finish line. Um, that's what it can be channeled for, and it's good when you use it that way. But really, the greatest motivator, looking back, and I'm honest now, when I share the stage, um, was fear. Yeah. For sure. Fear, fear that fear, if I didn't fear of what? Him, fear of failure. Fear that if I didn't make the MBA, I wouldn't be worthy of love. Mm. That yeah, again, even though we broke away from polygamy, I had that deeply embedded story of worth in my subconscious. So the theme is um, fighting for or proving to yourself um, that you deserve love. So everything kind of hanging on that. Yes. Yeah. Basically. And that was very much the story that drove me, that character arc that you're asking about. And so um, through a long, crazy story and journey, yeah, I made, the, I made uh, my scholarship to the University of Utah in 1998, the year that Utah lost to Kentucky in a national championship game. It was a big program at the time. And I loved my coach there, uh, but his mother got cancer my sophomore year, and he began to unravel, and I share compassion, and that I see uh, his own fear now, looking back. But he began to unravel, and you know, one day he called me a disgrace to cripples, and if mm-hmm. I was in a wheelchair and I saw you play basketball, I'd shoot myself. And, wow. um, and that, that broke my heart, and I ended up going to Weber State after that, ready to quit. I, I really thought I had no value. Um, cause I thought I had failed and I thought I was just going to go to Weber state and, uh, graduate and maybe go be a teacher or something. I didn't know. Um, but then before my senior year started, um, I actually went on medication for PTSD mm-hmm. and also something called scrupulosity. I think you might know of, it's just a form of OCD that mm-hmm. is religious based, um, where yeah, I actually, I actually hit it. From the time I was 13, because when we broke away from polygamy, it began to emerge. I was going through puberty, and my body was going through changes. And the last, the last uh, Sunday school lesson I got in this all-red polygamous group um, said that um, uh, uh, homosexuality is the greatest sin in the world, and um, then, uh, so master, uh, so yeah, uh, homosexuality is the greatest sin in the world and masturbation leads to homosexuality. <laughs> and so there I am going through puberty. My life is completely turned upside down. All my cousins, my best friends are gone, new school. And I remember I was sitting next to a really pretty girl in eighth grade, the first day of school, the new school, and she's wearing a skirt Mm-hmm. And I see these legs. I'm like, wow, she's really pretty. And I feel like this sensation in my body. Right. And I'm like, oh, no, what's this urge I want to do? Oh, my gosh. Why do I want to touch myself? Oh, my gosh. And this is like a, a, a switch that flips in your head that, oh, my gosh, does that mean I'm gay? Because right. I, wanted, I wanted to pleasure myself because I'm natural. I'm a human. And... um and it's completely illogical and ridiculous, but that's the thing about OCD and branches of it is that most of us know these thoughts are ridiculous and irrational, but we just can't stop thinking about them and yeah. obsessing about them. Well, also and, that, uh, those thoughts are also aligned with shame. 
Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so my compulsion was to, I would sneak out of class and just go pray in the bathroom. Mm. I'd pray like 10, 12 times a day at school saying, please, God, please don't be angry with me. Oh, wow. Um, but at the same time, I began to play basketball. So I was able to channel a lot of it into basketball and uh, just hide a lot of neuroses. And so my teammates and my coaches always thought I was really intense. And I was. But I still had this story that, yeah, I had to do something amazing and God would be proud of me. So, like, truly, every major missed shot in my head had eternal ramifications. Mm. That's every, how much pressure every, I put on myself. Yeah, right. everything was life or death. or Everything was uh, heaven or hell. It was. Yeah. It was. And so, um, and, you know, I have great people that ask me after my speeches and keynotes. They ask me the great question. Well, if you didn't have that fear, do you think you would have made the NBA? And it's a fair question. I, 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 and I can't answer it honestly because hindsight is not actually 2020, even though people like to say it is. It's actually chain reaction. And what I mean by that is I used to do this thing and beat myself up every night after a game and say, oh, you know, if only I'd made that easy layup in the second quarter, I would have had 20 points tonight instead yeah. of 18. But it wasn't until I was like 30 years old that one night while I was lying in bed, beating myself up, I had a thought that was like, well, you know, if I had, if I had made that easy layup, um, I, they would have had to stop the play, inbound the ball, and run a completely different play at the other end. Mm -hmm. And whether they made or missed it, we would have had to respond accordingly. And then they would have had, so it's just chain reaction. So who's to say I would have even touched the ball for the rest of the night? Yeah, it's all, not, the, uh, the butterfly effect. It's the butterfly effect. So that's the best way to say what hindsight is. And so when people say hindsight is twenty twenty, that's actually very incorrect. And so to answer the question, if I didn't have that fear, would I have made the NBA? I honestly can't. I can't answer it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I mean, see it, you in, know, in, in, in a way, it doesn't matter. That's not your it story, doesn't. right? It's not my story. So And go ahead. So from there, um, how did you – now, now – Oh, be, at the Weber State part. Yeah, you were asking that. From there – so it's interesting. So the mental health thing, it's – it's funny, well, John, you're a therapist and you deal with people who have so much shame about mental health and it's ridiculous because it's, well, I remember one day I went, once I was diagnosed and went on medication, I went and talked to my coach, Coach Cravens at Weber State. And I remember I felt so much shame and I was embarrassed. I went, I told him, coach, I'm so sorry. I know this isn't what you signed up for. And he was just so confused. And he looked at me and said, Lance, you needing medication for your OCD. It's the same as your teammate Brad needing insulin for diabetes. And he gave me that space and that permission right. to not have shame. And it's so funny, John, that here we are. We live in a world where if someone says, oh, I'm on antibiotics for my liver that I shot last week because I went on a bender, we'll say, oh, bless you. I hope you get better. Um, but if we say, oh, I want a medication because of a serotonin imbalance in my brain, it's mm, too bad you're just not tough enough or strong enough to deal with it naturally. It's completely yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of judgment with um, meds and, and all of that stuff. 
It is. And it's ridiculous because our brain is our most important organ along with the heart. And yet we're thinking, oh, you need help with it? Oh, you're just weak. And it makes no sense at all. Um, but because of that loyalty and compassion from that coach, I mean, I wanted to give him all I could, but he also gave me the courage to start thinking big again. And I started writing down my goals and um, every goal I've written down and put above my light switch. And every time I touch the light switch, I read it out loud. Every goal I've done that with for over a year has come true in some way, shape or form. Does it look like what I thought it was going to look like? No. But it comes true, and I started doing that again. And so, um, I, I like what uh, I like. I like what you just said that um, that that those goals have come true, but uh, they didn't necessarily look like what you thought they were going to look like. No, and I and I think no. that's that's another great misconception that when people are are visualizing and they have goals that they think it's going to be a, a carbon copy of what you see, and, and yes. usually the way that life works. Um, right. It, it's like the goals are achieved, but they, they manifest in a different way. They do. And what you talk about is an expectation. Um, and yes. learning to say, I'm going to set a goal and I'm going to chase it as though I'm on fire. But I'm also going to learn to detach from what it's supposed to look like. And that's a hard thing to do. That's a hard skill to learn. And that takes time. And it takes enough heartbreaks eventually that once you learn, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to achieve it and I'm going to allow it to look like what it needs to look like. And, um, so I, uh, started writing down my goals and they were Island Solid will average 18 points and 12 rebounds a game. My senior year, I'll lead the nation in rebounding. I'll be the first legally deaf player in the NBA. And, um, and I, I did all of them. And at the end of my senior year, I led the nation in rebounding when my season was over. Two brilliant basketball players, Paul Millsap and Andrew Boga, both passed me up in the NCAA tournament after my season was over. And uh, I went from number one to number three. And I only got one NBA workout. And that was to go practice with the Utah Jazz um, because someone had missed their flight. And I wasn't drafted. Mm -hmm. um, because it was like, oh, he went to a smaller school, Weber State, even though, you know, that's where Damian Lillard come from. Weber State's a great school um, for basketball players. Then I went over to Istanbul, and uh, the crazy story there, I mean, I, I know we only have 40 minutes. I'm trying to take too much time, but let's just say there was a point in Istanbul I was running around with $20,000 in my pocket, and someone was chasing me down the back streets of the Grand Bazaar. Wow. And... Um, and, you know, like, wait, I thought I was a professional basketball player. You know, I don't know what this is, but this ain't basketball. Why do I feel like I'm in a Jason Bourne movie? Yeah. And um, I then went over to Spain and then injured my knee in Spain. And team there said that was a, a pre-existing condition. And um, uh, so I came home. My very first year as a pro basketball player broke in debt in the red. Mm -hmm. Um and from there, I took a landscaping job just to get through the summer while I rehabbed my knee. And then I got one call uh, six months later to go try out for the minor league team for the Utah Jazz, uh, the Idaho Stampede. And um, that contract uh, was $1,100 a month mm -hmm. uh, as, as a pro basketball player. Wow. And I only got that job turns out to be the token media guy at the end of the bench that they thought wasn't really good enough to play. And so it was like, yeah, let's go send our deaf guy to go do all the communication work. Right. Mm. And, um, 
you know, I had a choice there. I was like, I could say F this, this is stupid. I'm better than this. Or it was fine. I'm going to learn how to do a radio interview. I'll learn how to do public speaking to kids at schools. Um, and those skills allow me to transition out of basketball and make more money than I ever did as a basketball player. So that actually became the bridge, huh? It that, did. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's where I learned those skills. And you know what's really interesting is I think – so that's the difference, um, I think, between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And a lot of people yeah. – if you so if you had a fixed mindset and also a lot of uh, pride, you wouldn't have done that. And so mm -hmm. then you wouldn't have gotten the, uh, the soil or the, the practice to do what you're doing now. Yeah. And that's what I love sharing with people when I speak to companies that we're all going to be pigeonholed. You've been pigeonholed. You're going to be minimized and people just aren't going to see your value because they don't want to. And you can pout about it or you can understand that they're giving you the tactical advantage when they underestimate you. Yeah. Yeah. But everyone I, thinks they're entitled to respect right away. You, you got um, you got to earn it. You got to build it. You got, you got to, you know, pull your sleeves up. You know, so the, my version of that was after um, uh, therapy school and a master's and all of that being thrown into nonprofit. And it's I had a lot of resistance and a lot of uh, ego and not wanting to, to do that because that's not what I thought a therapist um, looked like. You know, I, uh -huh. I, I imagine the private practice and the the. Uh, the wrinkle-free pants and all that. Um, but <laughs> yeah. it, it was in the trenches working with um, teenagers where I came up with a lot of concepts and then it, mm -hmm. uh, learning to run groups, like all that happened in those five years. And, you know, that, yeah. that I can relate to your story of how um, being that the, the end guy at the bench uh, repositioned you and gave you the tools to, to you to, to launch yourself now, you know, or these days. It it did. And yeah, at the time, I didn't quite see it because I still was like, hey, I'm learning these skills. I know they'll come in handy someday, but also it's, this is kind of what I have to do right now if I want to stick on the team. And I yeah. know I just got to stick around long enough. And that's the thing about underdogs. Um, if you stick around long enough, the tables will go your way. Mm -hmm. But you have to play into the fourth quarter. But most people quit by halftime. Yeah. And uh, my little joke that I get to share with people, you know, in the land of, in every allowed arena, everyone's deaf. And so in the land of temporary deafness, uh, the fourth quarter, the permanently deaf man is king. Mm. Because I'm used to not being able to hear things, so I don't get rattled. But again, you have to play until the fourth quarter. Right. Um, but most people... They're so conditioned to the illusions of instant success, instant gratification, that once they get punched in the face one time, they think, okay, I guess I have to stop. My dreams aren't coming true. Um, uh, that's not, you and I know that's not the way the world works. Yeah. Even though you have so many people out there selling courses and stuff like that and time hacks and cheat sheets. And so... Um, yeah, so I'll just ask you, John. You know, what is the average age of an NBA rookie? Oh, I'm going to say young. Um, I don't know, but 25? No, 25 is actually pretty old. Uh, it's not 19 wow. or 20. Oh, wow. Uh, 19 or 20 when they're drafted as freshmen out of uh, uh, college. Yeah. And I, I was 27 when I made the NBA. And so that's seven extra years longer than the average rookie yeah and yeah everyone thinks um 
that things should happen easy. And so we have all these illusions of social media of people selling quick fixes, but they're not real. And um, like what you had to do, going back to school and having the, the resolve, but also the humility to say, yeah, I'm older. I'm in my 30s. I'm going through a, a crisis here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go kind of just uh, have a renaissance about myself and go back to school and learn new things. Um, that takes a lot of courage to do. Yeah, absolutely. And not a lot of people are willing to do that. Um, and uh, because it also was you admitting, yeah, this is like a five-year project it's not just going to be something that happens overnight right and i think especially today um with the internet technology uh, it's it's programming all the um kids coming up to have little uh patience and yes uh, everything's delivered now and mm-hmm. um so there's a sense of entitlement and what people don't understand is i mean they see the tip of the iceberg but they don't see the the rest of it underneath the water you know and no. so um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, like people don't know, like for me, I've been, I put my head down and I blogged for five years, just, mm-hmm. just, that's all I did. Yeah. Um, right. and before that I wrote, you know, 10 screenplays and all of that, mm-hmm. but all they see is, you know, one book deal or the recent book deal. And they think like, Oh, he instant success. And yeah. He must've got that because, um, whatever, you know, uh, and it's no, like, I, I, I think that, um, everything else is what produces um, all the stuff that, that comes later, you know? Yeah, no, it, it does. It absolutely does. And the funny thing is that so many people are trying to avoid heartache. Mm-hmm. They're trying to avoid heartbreak and disenchantment and failure when we know those are the greatest teachers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I find it funny when you have all these relationship coaches out there trying to help us avoid uh, heartbreak. <laughs> like, yeah, and, yeah. And, you, and that you know that's the thing about divorce is um, when when you are divorced, the world uh, easily stamps defective, or they feel like, yeah. well, if you if you couldn't fix your marriage, what makes you think you could fix someone else's? But actually, mm-hmm. divorce is what creates that soil for you to look back into the black box and and actually learn about learn. yeah about why the plane went down and how to build a better yeah. one, you know. Exactly. And you being able to say, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm, and I'm actually humble enough to show you, share with you my mistakes and what I learned from my mistakes mm-hmm. to help you. Um, and that takes a lot to do. And that's a far more effective teacher than perfection. Yes. Um, but the thing is, that's not real perfection. The perfection, real perfection is not pretty. And that real perfection is the cardinal, is the constant striving, and um, failing, but getting back up, and finessing your craft. That it doesn't just happen naturally. Um, that it takes failure. And my favorite thing, I love to push back against a lot of the new age movement, uh, the law of attraction, all that mm-hmm. stuff. And mm-hmm. oh, just float downstream, path of least resistance. You know. Right. Um, like, no, that's not real because let's think about it as a basketball player. If I said I wanted to have the best season of my life, I then have to uh, train and have resistance yeah. and opposition right. and discomfort and pain. And as I build up stamina and endurance, 
that then prepares me that when game time comes that I can withstand all opposition. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I just say, oh, I'm going to wish it because the law of attraction says I can have it and then I don't have to train or do any cardio, you're going to get wiped off the map right. right when the game starts. And so when people are out there trying to take shortcuts, um, that's, that's not the way it works. And that, that is an entitlement, as you said. And entitlement is a vicious disease when you think you can have something without actually earning it. And you know what? This also applies to relationships. I think so yes. many people, you know, especially because of the the uh, uh, the, the Disney movies and and um, how media portrays love and and all of that. I mean, even like shows like The Bachelor, where yeah, um, you know, it, relationships take training. It takes um, looking inward. It takes so much work. And people think that just because you're attracted to someone that it should all play out. And, and that's just the beginning. <laughs> you know? It's just the beginning. That, that's the and easy part. And uh, I'm sure you roll your eyes too when you hear it, but so many people use the term or the expression of soulmate, oh, yeah. I think, as uh, a way to absolve themselves of accountability sure. in a relationship. Sure. By saying, oh, you can't understand why I'm being moody and not communicating today. You're supposed to read my mind because you're supposed to be my soulmate. I shouldn't have to communicate. You should just get me. And that is rampant. And that's the, the disease of the myth of the soulmate. And the thing I'm most grateful for in this life is something I had to earn, and that's the ability to communicate. Mm. And yet I see everyone around me saying, I don't want to have to communicate. I just want my soulmate who should just get my mind and take care of all my every need without me having to articulate it. And it's absurd. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And you know, they also don't teach us this stuff in school. So we learn they don't. No, Yeah, we learn through, through our broken hearts. And so, you know, when I meet people who have been through divorce, who have been through uh Al Anon meetings and through codependency and all yes. that, it makes mm -hmm. me feel like, oh, they actually have wisdom. You know, it doesn't yes. make it doesn't make me feel like they have failed. It makes me feel no. like they have actually um love lessons to share. They do. And um, not to pat myself on the back, but when you watch my TEDx talk, What is Your Polygamy? Mm. If I'm out there showing a mirror to the world, asking them, what is your polygamy? And seeing, showing people how we're not very unlike people who practice polygamy and that we all have our stories and comfort zones of paradigms that allow us to other others, the othering of others by mm -hmm. making ourselves more important. If I was going to do that and not um, show the loss and the disenchantment that I've had and the heartbreak that I've had of how my own stories and my own baggage that I brought into my marriage that contributed to the downfall of that marriage, um, showing what my polygamy was, uh, how how have I earned the right to actually be on a stage talking to people about these very tough things to talk about? And as you said, when you meet people that have been through those, that kind of pain, you know that they have something to offer you. Yeah. And we have enough, again, influencers out there who are just really good at regurgitating Wayne Dyer or somebody, but what price have they really paid to be on a stage uh, spouting those words at you. And I think as a society, while some people are not getting better, I think a lot of us are getting better on social media 
at just feeling someone's energy and mm-hmm. knowing if they've actually paid a price or not. I was going to say, I think that's the good news is you can tell if someone has been through a journey or slayed dragons, you know? Yeah. Um, the, the good news is that even though there's a lot of noise and a lot of people wearing the t-shirt, um, people are also very, um, they, they could smell bullshit now more than ever. I, I agree with you. And yeah. I have found some comfort in that. And while there are some who are slow to smell it and that's, you kind of like, Oh, I hope they're going to be Okay. Um, there's enough that are starting to figure it out. Um, because that's, again, that's what a lot of my message is in that I'm not this motivational speaker who's out yeah. there telling people, Oh, um, follow my formula and you'll make a million dollars next year. And then suddenly you'll be happy. Right. Um, I get to say to finish the, the arc of my stories that, um, there was a stretch there while I was doing all the media stuff that I hadn't played in three straight weeks. And I was stressed out. I was, I didn't know what was going to happen with my life, making $1,100 a month. Mm-hmm. And I had a bleeding ulcer and, um, my mom called me up and she said, you know, Lance, I'm really proud of you. You've worked really hard. You don't have to do this to yourself anymore. And why do you keep doing it? And without being a victim or a martyr, I said, mom, because I choose to. Mm-hmm. Because it's my choice. It's my choice. And um, within a week of that phone call, the starting center broke his leg. The starting uh, power forward got bought out, ironically, to go play for the same team in Turkey, the one I played for the year before, where I was mm-hmm. running around with $20,000 in my pocket. Right. And, um, you know, he asked me, hey, are they safe? I'm like, uh, you know, just uh, – I." You know, just be careful with it. But of course, in my head, I'm doing jazz hands. I'm all excited. And um, the backup center got recalled to um, uh, his NBA team. He was an NBA signee. And so by default, I was the only big man the team had. And the coach was all freaked out that night as we flew into Bismarck, North Dakota for a game. And and uh, he was like, oh, Lance, you know, you haven't played in three weeks. Just keep it safe, play smart, you know, and be a good teammate, get four or five points. And, um, uh, and I was already in a good mood cause that road trips meant like meal money. So I could actually go buy a $5 foot long from subway if mm-hmm. I was feeling kind of like a big spender. Right. Right. And so I'm already in a good mood and I'm like, okay, fine, let's go do this. And that night, the first game on the road as a starter, I gave him 30 points and 10 rebounds. Wow. And, um, and it was, I just, I, there I was just sitting on the bench, just waiting for my time. And how was I uh, able to play for 40 straight minutes after not playing for three straight weeks? And that it was during practice time, it was my time to do the cardio that when my teammates were ahead of me on the fast breaks and they didn't need me to run with them, I still ran with them. Mm-hmm. And when they made the layup, I just went one stride further underneath the baseline, underneath the hoop and touched the baseline. And, you know, my teammates laughed at me. They said I wasn't being cool. Um, but what is cool never got me anything in my life. And um, uh, that allowed me to have the uh, stamina and perseverance to play 40 straight minutes and do what I did. And from there, I uh, averaged 22 points and 13 rebounds a game for the rest of the season. And shortly after, was called up to the Cleveland Cavaliers. And, you know, the NBA was everything I hoped it to be. Yeah. Um, I walk into uh, uh, the locker room. My locker's right next to LeBron. He's, he's my 
beat up D-League shoes, minor league shoes, and he says, hey, yo, uh, we don't wear those shoes here. Take a pair of mine. And granted, he had a whole other locker designated for shoes, but he gave me a pair. That was <laughs> right. nice of him. Right. And the food, the perks, I'm never eating ramen noodles ever again. That's, yeah. That was my main staple in the minor leagues, eating ramen noodles, moving my six foot eleven frame. And, um, uh, but the one thing I most wanted the NBA to be that it could never be, uh, was shooting a, I was fouled in my first time in the game in Cleveland, Ohio, and I went to shoot a free throw and, um, I had a thought that came into my head that was, you know, is this it? Mm. Is this the best that I guess? I, I don't feel any difference. Sure. My ego is happy. Yeah. But my heart my gut yeah your soul i i still felt empty right i still felt i wasn't enough that if i miss the shot i'll lose my job and i won't be worthy of love that that constant downward spiral of fear of worst case scenario and that said you know love is conditional i didn't feel different and there was severe disenchantment that came in that moment because mm -hmm. I finally got to peek behind the curtain of Oz and see just like any corporation where there's a lot of money involved. Um, the NBA was very corporate as well. And I say that with respect, not yeah. disenchantment or anger towards it. Sure. Um, but when you chase something with so much altruism, but also putting it on such a pedestal, like I did, um, it's impossible to live up to those expectations. Yeah. Um, that we put onto our dreams uh, right. that we believe will validate us and tell us that we have something to offer the world. And um, even when I was in the NBA, when I medication again for depression, mm. um, the disenchantment that came, but also as you know, uh, you've been in your field long enough that even when happy things happen, like weddings and big job promotions, your serotonin can get out of balance. Um, and depression can hit you after really positive events. Right. And, um, but then later the next season, uh, the economy hit, uh, 2008, the crash and, um, most NBA teams released their 14th and 15th roster spots. And I was no exception. And, um, I went over to Italy playing over in Italy and the team there wasn't paying and, um, I nearly uh, committed suicide by jumping out of a window of mm. a hotel. Wait, did you um, you mean on purpose or or what do you mean? On, on, on purpose. Okay, so I, you, I was, you attempted. I, was, I, it was, I I I nearly attempted. I I had taken my hearing aids out because like at least I want to die in peace, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, luckily, I was sitting on the windowsill about to go, but then I was sitting in I was in a hotel where it was his old clunker uh, rattle phones and mm. the phone was on the wall and it vibrated on the wall and I can, I can feel very well with the other senses kicking in for the loss of hearing. And I knew it was my mom. She just knew. Yeah. And I answered and she knew something was wrong. And um, I, I came down from the ledge and when you're about to do something, uh, it's a serious toll on the nervous system when you're about to do something oh, like sure. that. Yeah. And that nervous breakdown um, and breakdown of the nervous system, it took me about two years to recover from. Wow. Um, just kind of really going back and checking my stories, you know, checking the thought patterns of my Mormon upbringing that has everything in such a linear based construct that X plus Y equals Z. Mm -hmm. And 
if I do this and I do this, God will bless me. If I do that, I'll be worthy of love. And realizing that's that's my responsibility. It's not my soulmate's responsibility. It's not the MBA's responsibility. And even while I was working through all that, I still had the story that, oh, someday I'll get married and then I'll really be happy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, you learn to... Uh, find the grace in that and that she is the only person I could have fallen in love with that madly Mm -hmm. to get me to be that exposed to show all the blind spots that I still had. Yeah. It's so so easy to, well, it's all, you know, because I know we're both divorced uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm sure we had, uh, you know, obviously uh, different experiences of that divorce, but it's so easy to see um, what happened that was bad, but if you could actually see that that bad needed to be happen, uh, that yes. needed to happen for you to be exposed or for you to go on your journey, then yeah. it's actually, it's not bad. It's actually, it's gold. I mean, it, yes, it was painful, it but it's, it's actually, so painful. yeah, but it, it's what, uh, you know, brought upon your rebirth or your evolution. So it, it did. And so, you know, when you and I were in Bali, I was doing this with the group. It's the dark and light work of being yeah. able on one hand to hold the pain right. and the heartbreak. And not diminish it by giving platitudes or silver lining and saying, yeah, it hurts. And on the other hand, saying, and gratitude to her, she's the only person that could have gotten to be, to be that exposed mm-hmm. to propel me on such mm-hmm. further growth that I otherwise would not have had. Yeah, what a great, I love that exercise. And what a, what a great m- reminder for anyone listening, if um, they are going through pain or they're in a dark time or in a tunnel, um, because it's very hard to see when you're in the trenches, the other hand, which is, you know, yeah. the gratitude of what, what, what this uh, can bring about, you know, the, the, the seed that the this lesson. is going to plant. Yeah, the lesson, the gold, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, the gold. And, um, and so, you no, know, it's always like passing clouds. Some days there's no clouds at all, but some days she's on your mind a lot and it's overcast. And all you can do is just breathe through it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just sit there and breathe and let it and acknowledge your feelings and not diminish them. And learning how to feel and um, learning that the heart heals the heart. And the brain can help us develop the coping mechanisms to slow ourselves down, to finally just get present and actually be brave enough to face the wounding and the feelings and the hurt. And that takes tremendous strength. Mm-hmm. John and learning to do that over the last four years, learning how to grieve because I came from a culture where I didn't know how to grieve. Um, that ultra religious upbringing that if you were grieving the loss or the death of somebody, you were showing a lack of faith. Right. And so I didn't know how to grieve. And so learning how learning how to grieve in my late third in my mid thirties and going through this process, retiring from basketball to be with my son, um, transitioning careers. Um, not knowing what the hell I was doing by doing the whole motivational, inspirational think speaker thing, mm-hmm. just winging it and, um, doing all of that while going through the pain of a divorce and learning how to grieve. Um, I'll tell anyone I'm not being flippant. It's not hyperbole. Um, mm-hmm. but learning how to grieve and actually be brave enough to face my feelings, um, was harder than making the MBA. Yeah. Yeah, and, and thank you for that. And I actually, I want to end there because that's such a powerful statement. Um, I, 
One of the things I love doing is shattering veneers, and I love that in this episode we shattered so many veneers from you know what it looks like to be an NBA player, especially uh, or in that world, uh, especially because you know it, the outside world sees the NBA or hears the the word NBA or the letters, and they think Ferraris mm-hmm. and groupies and all of that. Yeah. Um, but that's not always truth. And also, uh, you know, uh, shattering the veneer on polygamy, shattering the veneer on this concept of the one and, and all of that. So um, I think your story does that. And I think that's why it's so powerful. And, you know, I, I was going to ask you at the end what your definition of um, man or the new man uh, is. But I actually don't want to because I feel like you've demonstrated it. You know, I think it's easy to say, well, here's my definition, uh, and, 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 and uh, go down a checklist, I think it's actually more powerful and harder to actually show up in those shoes. And I think in the last hour, um, you not only sharing your story, but the way that you are and the way that you are being, which is, which is also something I witnessed at the retreat, is your definition, is that instead of announcing it, you are actually demonstrating it in action. Well, thank you, John. That actually, yeah. that's one of the best compliments I've ever received. So thank you. Yeah, there's an authenticity about you that um, is undeniable. And I think you've earned it through uh, your character arc. Well, thank you, John. I really appreciate it. That means a lot, man. And um, I love the, the fact that you're out there in uh, that you and I, it's fun that we kind of, we kind of hold the edges together that we're not opposites, but we have uh, just different energies that mm-hmm. allow us to navigate and chip away, as you say, at the veneer of things yeah. um, from our respective ends. And it's, it's, it's good symbiosis. And so I'm glad I get to call you a friend and a peer. Thanks, brother. I appreciate that, that too. And uh, I'm a visual person, and the visual I see is the picture that we took in Bali where we're on that, um, we're, we're on these little swings. That's the, <laughs> and, and we're, we're, we're holding, we're connected by, we're holding hands, which I love because men don't hold hands, but we're holding hands. And then, you know, it just, it's just shot from the back. And, uh, and, uh, um, mm-hmm. I, I, always, I always see that photo when I think about you. Um, let yes. us know what you're doing now and where we can find you. Oh, uh, okay. What am I doing now? So I have a couple of retreats coming up. I have another one of the hot springs in Montana, Sleeping Child Hot Springs. You can find out about it on my Instagram at LanceAllRed41 or my website, LanceAllRed41.com. But also my new book, uh, The New Alpha Male, um, uh, is coming out with Macmillan and Sounds True Publishers in March of 2020. And I'd love to come back on and talk with you about that. Yeah, for sure. And we can, we can talk about a lot of the stuff that our books cover about what is actual masculinity. And so that'll be fun to come back and talk about that with you in, in a few months. Awesome. Thank you, Lance. I really appreciate having you. Thank you, John. All right. Be well. Hey, before you go, if you like my ramblings and revelations and shares, I am now texting people directly to their phone. Just go to my website, theangrytherapist.com. If you want to subscribe, I'll be doing weekly text, five days a week, reminders and also uh, mindsets and uh, exercises and challenges. And every week there will be a different theme, a different topic. So I hope to see you in your phone. And also, if you enjoy this conversation, I hope you help me uh, spread the dialogue and help other people by sharing it. You never know what people need to hear. So if it's helped you, I hope you uh, can help me help others. Thank you.
Hey, if you have a passion to help others and want to become a life coach, or you just want to acquire tools to change your own life, learn more about our Catalyst Life Coaching Intensive. We are an evidence-based training program with an amazing, authentic, vibrant community, and we give lifetime support. Just go to my website, theangrytherapist.com, and click on Life Coach Training.